Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, happy spring break. Can we uh, just put our hands together for spring, that it's finally here? Thought it would never come. And it might snow this week. I mean, who knows? We just, we really, there's really no guessing anymore. Um, I like this crowd. It's, it's a lot more intimate than the last hour was, so I'm here for it. Uh, my name is Adam. Uh, like Dan said, I'm the director of communications here. Um, I'm pretty fresh face around here. Just a few months I've been doing this role. Um, but before that, my time at Journey goes back several years. Uh, started when I was in college. I've been here for about six years. I was an intern for about three and a half. I got my degree in communications. Um, and then once I was done with that, I worked some other jobs, and then um, God led me here. So um, I love doing this. It's something that uh, I believe I was put on this earth to do, so that's nice. Um, but yeah, so that's a little bit about me. That's who I am. Uh, if you're just now joining us, we are in our second week of our Jesus Is series. This is a series where we're examining, uh, based out of uh, John 14, 6. We can go ahead and throw that up on the screen behind me. We're examining who Jesus is. In, in today's world, we have all sorts of different things going on around us at all times. And we, it, it's, it's pulling your hair out trying to figure out, okay, where, where is Jesus in this? What, what, what should I do here? How should I approach this situation? So on, so forth. And so as we've unfurled this, we broke it into three weeks. And as we can see here, it says, Jesus answered, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was uh, speaking here sandwiched between the Last Supper, the last meal he shared with his disciples, um, and his eventual crucifixion shortly thereafter, whenever he was taken, beaten, bound, tortured, crucified, died, three days later rose again. Uh, so this is sandwiched between this. Where we're going to be in Scripture is also sandwiched between that. And so that's a little bit of the backdrop. But last week, Dan examined how Jesus is the way. Um, and, and one thing that uh, I thought that was the hinchpin of, our, of, of last week that Dan said, he said, the way is not a path, it is a person. And so Jesus, who is the way, is not so much about the nuts and bolts of this and that, although that is involved. He is uh, transformative. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with a person. And so, as we're looking at Jesus, I have the unenviable task of talking about Jesus as the truth. Um, anytime truth gets brought up, the arguments ensue, um, all sorts of things, different interpretations. Even in this room, all of us have different opinions on everything. Even if we're very like-minded with somebody, we still have differences. That's, that's the hilarious nature of being a human being, that we're so... Uh, precise and individual that we even have differences, even when we're on the same team, so to speak, if I can put it crassly like that. Um, so there, there's a lot folded into that. And so today we're going to be kind of, I'm going to be honest, we're going to be wading into some really difficult stuff. Um, as we're examining this, this passage of scripture, Jesus mines out some things that are very uncomfortable. Um, but I ask that each of us kind of approaches this with a spirit of humility as we've been praying. As I'm doing I'm nervous about this message, but I believe it's important, and uh, I just invite all of us to do that. But I always, I always hand out my email if I'm going to talk about something that you know could be controversial. So uh, it, you can write it down as Pastor Dan Reeves at hotmail.com. Um, you can you can just shoot a message real quick as it's going, get a running list or whatever. Um, that is a joke. If you're new, that's our lead pastor. Um, so that that's kind of uh, where we're at here. This is the, the backdrop. But if we're going to start with Jesus as the truth, we need to go back to the very beginning. So in John 1, verse 1, 
John opens his account of the gospel. The other accounts, we have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the other ones focused a lot on the, the historical uh, idiosyncrasies of the day. So they have differing stories. They're very detailed. Luke is notorious for that. His is uh, very detailed in how he minds out things. John seemed to be so much more focused on the person of Jesus. He seemed to be so much more focused on the deity of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Um, and the other ones were focused on that, to be sure. But John, almost to a point of overemphasizes it, which, of course, you can't do. But he, he, every opportunity he gets, he reinforces the character and the person of Jesus. So when he opens this by saying, in the beginning was the word, he was writing this to a mixed audience. There would be uh, Jews who would read this. Jesus was a Jew. Much of the disciples, the men and women, were Jews. Um, all of this would be their backdrop and their background, but he was also writing to Gentiles. So if you're in the room and you're not a Jew, then you would be a Gentile. And so there, there's an inclusiveness to the way that this was being written. But this imagery would have evoked for a Jew, they would have said, oh, I, I know that in the beginning, in the Pentateuch, in Genesis. So when we go all the way back to Genesis and look at that, in the beginning, we see that there. But he uses this term, word. Now, word in the Greek is logos. And there is a lot of, there's more debate than you would think about this word because it's either pronounced logos or logos. And honestly, I don't care. You know what I'm saying? So you can pronounce it one way or the other. I'm going to say logos. But logos is the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. You see, this was present in Scripture before this point. So back in Psalm 33, um, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. And elsewhere in Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, it says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So Jews would have heard the word, they would, the, the word word, redundant, um, the word and they would have immediately thought of God's physical presence in the world as he, as he shifts and churns history, as he affects things. They would have thought of that as like this ordering of, of, of like God's arm of, of, of active work in the world. But the comparison doesn't stop there because actually this term was championed a couple of hundred years before by a guy named Heraclitus, who was a non-believing Greek philosopher. So, I mean, nothing to do with the Jewish face. Faith would have had nothing to do with Jesus. Someone who uh, would just be anyone who didn't believe in Jesus would be, for example. Uh, and he actually used this term and championed it as a school of thought for how we structure and organize the world around us. That the world, uh, although we, uh, he would say, although we don't know what brought it in or what brought it out, um, the word, the logos, is what what orders it and gives it meaning. And so he was drawing from both camps. So he was reaching across the proverbial aisle to those who were not Jews, and he was incorporative of those who were. So from the very outset, John is inclusive in his writing, and this is how he finishes that first verse. He said, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This, right out of the gate, the first verse is something that could have been punishable by death in his society. To say that not only was Jesus the word, many Jews would have been comfortable with saying, oh, he's a prophet, he's you know, he's this or that, but to actually say that the man Jesus 
was actually God is a leap that many would not have made. And so John wants you to know, he's staring you in the face and he's saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And not only was the word with God, but the word was God, Jesus. And so in verse two, John goes on to say, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so we're seeing here that without Jesus, nothing gets made. Without him, nothing is sustained. We don't have anything. If we form a framework or a system or a school of thought with the Bible and Jesus isn't at the center of it, then we have issues. Because without Jesus, there is no existence. Without Jesus, there is no faith. Without Jesus, there's no hope for you and for me. Paul said as much. If Jesus isn't really who he says he is, then we're all idiots, if you want to put it crassly. Jesus is the center of everything that we believe. And then in verse 4, it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so not only is Jesus God, not only is it that without Jesus we've got nothing, but he is the light of the world. In other words, he is good news. So he's God, without him we've got nothing, and he is good news for us. He doesn't come to us with a frown on his face. He doesn't smack us across the face when he walks up. He comes to us with his arms wide open as the light of the world, of all mankind. He is the thing that our souls long for, a return to true humanness. That's who Jesus is. And so if we want to put it simply, Jesus is the truth. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is the truth. And now it's one thing to think like, okay, we've outlined it. It's cool. I'm seeing it over there. There's Jesus as the truth over in the corner. But what happens, this is the question I want to pose to you, what happens when the truth moves in? So what happens when this disembodied truth that you either pay attention to or don't actually comes and, and mingles with your own life? So what happens when the truth moves in? That's where we're going to begin. We had to set the groundwork to go where we're going to go. We're going to be in John chapter 15, starting in verse 26. So we can go ahead and throw that scripture on behind me. But just a little bit of a backdrop of what is happening here. This is a, just a chapter down the line from where we were in John 14. Jesus is getting in every word that he can. Uh, to, to his disciples in that moment because he knew he was about to be arrested. So if you think, if you're ever in a situation where you're on a time crunch and you're just trying to get in all the words that you needed to say to somebody before you go, that's kind of where Jesus was at at this time. He was trying to make sure he shared everything that he had purposed in himself to share with his disciples before he went. Now, before this, we will return to this, but before this, he had just spoken an extremely hard word to them. And so this was actually his first form of encouragement. And again, we will return to that. Verse 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. 
Now, he uses the term advocate here and the spirit of truth. They're going to be interchangeable as we're going through this. But it's important to know that advocate was a term that he used on purpose. It was, it was a legal term. Think of like a lawyer in a courtroom, someone who argues on behalf of someone else. Um, and so for our case, Jesus is arguing on our behalf. He's covering uh, uh, the error and the wrong, the crime on our behalf to win the victory for us. So when he's saying the advocate, not only is he referring to himself, he's referring to the spirit of truth. Thank goodness, am I right, that none of us had to come up with the Trinity because that is an extremely complicated concept. But Jesus is sending the spirit of truth that we testify to and believe in. Now, it's, it's important that, that Jesus said here, did not just believe in my truth, but you're going to testify to my truth. You're going to speak to my truth. And so let's just get a little dictionary definition of truth for a second. Okay, truth is the quality or state of being true, that which is true or in accordance with reality. That's your Webster's for you. That's what the background is for, for okay, something that's true is in accordance with reality. Now, when in Christian circles, especially if you've, if you've grown up in Sunday school culture, especially here in the South, uh, going to church and whatnot, you would have heard a thousand times the word truth. And I would venture to say, and I can't speak on your behalf, but I know for me, when I hear the word truth, I immediately think of words on a piece of paper. Like that to me is truth. That's my first line is to that. But, but it is that, but it's also more than that. And so what does Jesus say? As as we've been reading our benediction every day, uh, every week together here at Journey, um, it's important that we revisit this. As we're reading it every week, it kind of gets lost on us. But this is exactly what Jesus was meaning. Anytime that he was saying, well, what what is the most important thing that Jesus is about? Well, it's right here in Mark 12. We can throw it up here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And so his Jewish audience at that time would have heard, love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, soul, mind, body, strength, everything. And they would have even literally had that on their bodies. They would have believed that zealously in their bones. They would have believed that, but they would not have put on love your neighbor as yourself. That to them was maybe something that was important, but not a big deal to them. They understood their, their idea of God to be, I have to love God so much That's all I have to focus on. I just have to love God so much. But what does Jesus say? Well, if he said the most important thing, something that there's no commandment greater than, it's to love him and to love the people around us. And so right off the bat, what the uncomfortable truth is that, yes, truth is something written, but truth is Jesus. It's a person. It's a relationship that he's calling us into that overflows into the people around us. That was what Jesus was most concerned with. And so here, just a moment ago, if you remember, I said we were going to return to something. We're about to get uh, Jesus following up on a conversation he just had with them. And just as something for your tool belt, when you're reading scripture, if something is repeated, that's the equivalent of a caps lock. They're trying to, John is trying to make sure you don't miss this point. He could have said anything that Jesus had done in his life, but he chose to sandwich these two things right together, right next to each other. 
And so if we know that truth is, is, is bound up in a relationship, that the truth that Jesus has for us is bound up in relationship, what does he say next? Well, in John 16, as we turn the corner here in verse 1, it says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Earlier, right before where we picked up and we don't have time to go back and, and mind that, he, he basically reiterates what he already said. Jesus was informing them that oppression was coming their way. Now, Again, if we can revisit, I have a lot of uh, a backlog of growing up in church. I, I heard all the time, the world's out to get you, on and on and on. And, and these kind of verses come up. And that's not to say that, you know, what, we're making a comment on whether that's always true or always not. But this would be my, I would immediately drop that into my context. But we have to remember that Jesus was talking specifically to these disciples what was about to happen, and we can look at history and know what was about to happen. Jesus was about to get killed, and then after that, they were all going to get scattered, and then Rome was going to tighten their fist around him. Nero's coming. Nero was notorious for, for murdering Christians, and not only that, they had the, the historic Jews on their back as well who were denying Jesus, and who were also going to feed them to the proverbial lion that was the Roman Empire. Bleak times were coming. But the thing about Jesus, and we know this because we just visited it, that Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus is in the end. All of the time is unfolding at his fingertips. And so when he told them this, of course it was on target. But there was something, obviously he knew what was going to happen. Think about the 2,000 years that separates us and them. About all the things that would happen. All of the oppression. And this is where we take our turn. It's true that in history, and I wish so bad, I wish so bad with a good conscience and with the backing of history, I could stand up and tell you that Christians are blameless, that we've never done anything wrong, we've never oppressed other people, that we've never uh, uh, done exactly what Jesus is talking about here. But unfortunately, that's not true. We think about just a few hundred years after Jesus was here and the Catholic Church was founded and it fused with a government and then all of a sudden they're putting people to death who don't agree with a certain thing and then you have hundreds of years after that when what we sprang out of, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century with a guy named Martin Luther and another guy named John Calvin and, and they uh, split from the Catholic Church over issues and a lot of us romanticize that and say, oh, well, they were putting an end to all that, but they carried over with them, whether we, whether we like to admit it or not, they carried over with them the idea of punishing heretics, people who didn't believe in their version of Orthodox, and many of those were Anabaptists, some of the earliest ancestors of Baptists, but they did so punishable by death, among other things. We, we have complicated figures in history behind us. And when we look at oppression and we're thinking about, okay, it wasn't always, you know, some godless empire imposing itself on Christians, although that was present a lot of the time. It was also empires that were claiming God that were oppressing themselves on other Christians, and so you have Christians spilling the blood of other Christians. 
And you might think, well, what, what is all this pertinent to? Well, it's pertinent because Jesus is tying his identity of self to this. And so I kind of wanted to, it's helpful for me to be able to compartmentalize something in my mind. And so when we think about the oppression that Jesus was saying would approach, the first term out of three that I think of is it's systemic. That when something happens and, and it, it requires for something on a mass scale to oppress a body of people, there has to be some form of culture in place that says that's okay, that allows people off the hook in their conscience to say, oh, well, you know, they did this and so they deserved this, or, or they're, they're less than human, which we cringe at today, but that was commonplace for much of human history. And so we, we look back and we go, man, this is complicated. This is a lot more complicated than I thought, and Jesus had this in his eye as he was telling them this. He was looking at them, and they were thinking about their situation, but he's speaking to us today. We know that. He's speaking to us through the scriptures. And so the way these things happen come at a cultural level. And then not only that, they're cyclical. They happen in cycles. So what tends to happen happens again in history. And again, you don't have to be a history buff to know this stuff. You can just kind of do like a, uh, a little summarize, like run over the top. You can see what happened in one generation well, maybe skips a generation, then it comes back. Or this happens here, and it carries on, carries on, and carries on, and then it's not done. And then it, you have this convoluted mess of, of things rearing their ugly head, coming back up from the seemingly the grave, and, and approaching and imposing themselves on people. And then lastly, they're consequential. So what happens in one generation to what one generation does to and what is done to one generation has an effect on the generation after. The only way we got to today is from yesterday and the day before yesterday and the day before that. Years turn into decades which turn into centuries. Time where we're existing in the present unfold. Our decisions create our identity. Our decisions affect the people around us, whether they're good decisions or whether they're bad decisions. We don't get from this past to today without the bridge of every day in between. And so it's a cautionary tale on the one hand, but on another, Jesus is highlighting a deeper issue in the lives of people who would claim the name of God who would do these things, and people who don't who would do these things. And it's that we have failed to see the image of God in one another. That from the very beginning, we were created in God's image, all of us. No matter where we go in life, no matter what decisions we make, no matter what the color of our skin is, no matter what, we are made in the image of God. And when we forget that, when we put that on the back burner, when we don't emphasize that, we tend to label, dehumanize, push away people who were made in God's image. There was a man who lived just a, about 150 years ago, um, approaching 200 years, somewhere in there. It was in the 19th century. And he was a devout believer in Jesus. He loved Jesus with everything in him. It carried him every single day through the horrendous difficulties that he faced. And his name was Frederick Douglass. He's one of the earliest abolitionists. He's a black man who was born into slavery. And he was, was 
graced by God. God liberated him. He was able to uh, become literate, whereas that was withheld from most slaves. Not only was he able to become literate and he was able to read and he was able to write, he was able to gain his freedom before the Emancipation Proclamation. And so he was out, he was a free man, and he was vouching and fighting on behalf of those who were not allowed to educate themselves, who were stuck in, in a cyclical, systemic, consequential system that they could not break free from. He fought on behalf of them. And the problem with this situation is that much of the harm that was being done was by people who were claiming the name of Jesus. And so what we have to do here, we have to approach this. And, and first of all, whatever you bring to the table, whatever opinions that you have, I'm going to just kindly ask that you lay them down for just a moment and let's practice some empathy together. There are some words that he wrote in his autobiography about his experiences under slavery as a person who believed in Jesus, who he, he believed in the value of the image of God in one another. This was his experience. And it's a little bit of a longer quote, but it's, it's absolutely necessary that we read it in the way that it was. And this is what he said. He said, I'm filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of each week meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. He who sells my sister for purposes of prostitution stands forth as the pious advocate of purity. He who proclaims it a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning to read the name of the God who made me. He who is the religious advocate of marriage robs whole millions of its sacred influence and leaves them to the ravages of wholesale pollution. The warm defender of the sacredness of the family relation is the same that scatters whole families, sundering husbands and wives, parents and children, sisters and brothers, leaving the hut vacant and the hearth desolate. We see the thief preaching against theft and the adulterer against adultery. We have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, and babes sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen, all for the glory of God and the good of souls. The slave auctioneer's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalm and solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers and the bodies and souls of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his bloodstained gold to support the pulpit and the pulpit in return covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other. Devils dressed in angels' robes and hell presenting itself the semblance of paradise. Now, if you're imagining you're alive in the 1800s and, and just imagine that Frederick Douglass is your brother, he's your son, he's your friend, how would you feel that this passage of Scripture that was likely withheld from them where we're talking about uh, uh, people being oppressed, thinking they're doing a service to God, people who really believe that the hierarchy of, of humanity was the white race at the top and everyone else below, who believed that horrendous theology, he was approaching this and looking at the scripture and saying, I'm living it. 
And the problem is it wasn't that long ago. He said elsewhere, and, and, and that was just, he wanted it to be clear. He was, t- he was trying to tell the truth. He was trying to be honest and, and say, look, a lot of people would say, oh, those were just a few bad apples. But again, it was systemic. It was cyclical. It was consequential. It was bigger than just a few people thinking this. It was a culture created around the subjugation of a person made in the image of God because of the color of their skin. And he said this when he was talking about one of the last masters that he had to live with who was extremely cruel. He said, prior to his master's conversion to Christianity, he relied upon his own depravity to shield and sustain him in his savage barbarity. But after his conversion, he found religious sanction and support for his slaveholding cruelty. I've heard it said that if you love something, you critique it. And this was the system that was present not too long ago for him that he had to live under and he had to fight through. And that by God's grace, we want to put that behind us. We never want that to return. We never want anything like that to happen to another human being again. That is terrible. But this was what Jesus was saying. We're going back to him now. He was saying that oppression was coming for people made in the image of God who love him. Oppression was coming. And this is what he says. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Notice that he said, none of you are asking me where I'm going. Because none of them are worried. They're immediately, and this was a culture that was a collectivistic culture. They would have thought, how do I contribute to the whole? Versus our individual culture where we think of, how can I contribute to me and mine? So they, they would have been closer to understanding the gravity of, of self-sacrifice than maybe we would today, if we're going to be that charitable with our interpretation here. But still, they were thinking about their fates. Jesus just hit them twice with this stuff that, hey, on target, this stuff's about to happen to you. And it's going to happen to people who, who are like you. And it's going to be done by people who say they love me but they're proving they don't by the way that they do this. And so they were obviously stuck in their heads. They were probably offended by this point. They were probably terrified. They were probably confused, all of the above. But Jesus was hinting at a specific freedom for them, a liberation of the soul, if you will, that Jesus, when he extends a hand to us, is offering us life as it was intended to live and intended to be. But his comes with the understanding that we love him and we love the people around us. He went against the the religion of the day that said, just love God and that'll be enough. He said, no, you have to love God. And as a proof of that love, you love and care for and listen and are concerned for your neighbor. The person who lives right next to you, no matter who they are. If you don't care about them, if you don't love them, then whatever, you've got some problems. And I'm speaking that to my heart because I'm hearing that and thinking, man. But Jesus promoted the idea of liberty being freedom for the good of all. That liberty is going to be freedom for everyone's good and your good too. But so often, I know in my mind, I mix that up with license, which is freedom for the good of you and only you. 
Jesus was saying, look, you need to think about, like, of course, sin affects you. You're going to have to answer for the wrong and the error of your life, but you forget to think about how it affects one another. When we just focus on, on like, what the, 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 the historic Jews did of just thinking, we're just going to love God and we're not going to worry about this, they're not worried about how their actions, how their sin, how their things affect the people around them who are made in the image of God. But that's why Jesus is saying, when you love someone else, you not only think in terms of how does this affect me, you think of it, you think of it in terms of how does this affect the people around me who have a different experience than I do, who, who X, Y, and Z. We think about more than ourselves whenever we're approached with Jesus of Nazareth. And so he expounds on this, and he kind of makes it a little bit more clear for them. And, and eventually we're going to get to some encouragement. But in John 14, uh, or excuse me, John 16 and, and on, he says, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So he was saying sin, a misunderstanding about sin, of, what's, uh, of, of what it was, was, he was saying it's a lack of belief in him. And uh, about righteousness, because he's going to the Father, he's going to be righteous on our behalf. And about judgment, because the prince of the world, speaking of, uh, of evil, of, of Satan, if you will, of, uh, of, of sin and error and wrong in the world, already stands condemned. But if we want to simplify that further, we can think of sin as what is wrong, What's wrong in this life? What isn't in accordance with the humanness and the creation and the design of God, of what he intends for us? We can think about righteousness as what is right. Righteous passes us right by. We think of righteous and we think of someone in a white robe with brilliant light around them. But really, righteousness is just what's right, what's true, what's life-giving, what doesn't rob from our neighbor, what doesn't take from us what is right. And then judgment is the difference between the two. Separating sheep and goats, as you will. Jesus was focusing on, look, when we, when we read the term, uh, we can go back to that verse really quick in, in uh, uh, back one. To, oh, there we are. Okay. Uh, when he says the world here, sometimes we drive by that and we think of the world in terms of Oh, the world is out there and we're Christians over here. But what we miss is that the same word is used everywhere for that interpretation, but also for just the general world and everyone who lives in it. And whether you're a believer in the room and you actually uh, believe in, in Jesus and, you, and you're trusting in him, we all have our starting place. And he is going through pains here to say, your starting place ain't it. No matter what your political leanings are, no matter how you were raised, no matter where you're at, your starting place did not land you close to where Jesus wants us to go. A lot of times we think of it being, you know, if someone says a hard truth to us or a hard word, we think of it being something that's going to reinforce something that we already believe. But we rarely think about how Jesus confronts us in our misconceptions of what he wants us to do. And that's the kicker. Maybe he's wanting to change your whole paradigm. And there's a yawning abyss below you where you're terrified of stepping out because you're holding on to these things and you're terrified. And that's exactly where Jesus meets us. It happened throughout history. The same people, we have our own things in the room, the same people who defended chattel slavery would have thought that the same way. And they did defend it. They believed it. 
And so for us today, we have to reckon with the fact that we are not nailing it. That we haven't nailed every category. The book is not shut on everything God wants us to do. It's open and he's writing. He wants us to grow and to come in line with him and be with him. And so he says um, in the next passage of scripture there, verse 12, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. We've talked a lot about some tough stuff. Uh, remember when I said this was unenviable. It is it's very nervous to talk about this. But Jesus was acknowledging their condition in that moment. He was saying, look, I know you've heard a lot, but you don't know the half of it. I could tell you so much more. I could tell you what's going to happen in the next 2,000 years. And it, just imagine if Jesus downloaded everything. Okay, Thomas, this is how you're going to go. Peter, this is how you're going to go. Paul, he's not even here, but we'll tell you how he's going to go because you'll see him later. Um, all of this stuff, he could have said that. But then he, he, he could have downloaded and said, this is what happens in this entry, in this entry, in this entry, in this entry. And this is what you need to do and not do, and on and on and on. And their brains would have exploded because God and human flesh is impossible to grasp because there's just too much. And so for us, we have to have a little bit of grace with ourselves when we look back at history and it feels really difficult to reckon with. Because either we think, oh, that was so long ago, or we, we don't know all the details, which are all true, and none of us have to be historians. But it is to give us a little grace to know it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant whenever you look back and you're trying to make sense of all this stuff in the past. You see, the posture of Jesus, what, what he really is getting at is that he didn't download all that stuff, but he, he was advocating for a posture to say, anytime there is a tragedy, anytime there's a hurt, Anytime there's a wrong perpetrated on another image bearer, your first instinct should not be when someone's tears are streaming down their face, when they're dealing with something that you don't understand. Your first instinct should not be, well, if you prove to me how any of this is connected to me, then I'll self-reflect. He's saying, no, you should see someone hurting and you should sprint to their side and say, are you okay? It's associated with this. Have I done anything that has hurt you? Have, did we teach something that was misconstrued? Did we, have we thought through everything that we're saying here? We should be the first to say, because maybe we get to the other side of it and nothing changes, but maybe we have a conversation with somebody. Imagine that. And we realize something about ourselves that we can then learn and grow and become like Jesus as he guides us. And that's just the thing. That's what he wants for us. And he says that in verse 12 or excuse me, in verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. The good news is as we're grappling with this, as we feel the weight of this as a community, as a people, as we're trying to make decisions and we're trying to live lives that are pleasing to God, that, that uh, lavishes worth on other people, that presents the true gospel to others, that he's going to guide us through it. That is the, the encouragement to his disciples then and to us today is that he is going to guide us and he is now, but all it takes for us to do, and it's hard, is to relinquish the control that we have over our way of doing things, over our worldview that we feel is so set in stone and realize we're a speck. We're a speck on a rock valued infinitely by God, but limited in our knowledge and under, understanding of anything. 
And when we approach Jesus, he is the holder of all things. And so who's going to walk up to a doctor with a PhD in a field and you maybe never had anything close to that and you're going to tell them how things are when they're supposed to be the ones you're asking questions from? That's what we do whenever we assume that Jesus agrees with us on everything, when we assume he fits nicely into our worldview. And that's just not the case. This is Jesus, a Middle Eastern Aramaic man. In 2,000 years ago, he looks nothing like much, many of us in this room. He didn't talk like us, anything. He is so different. And that's a beautiful thing because he is God. He is the truth. He's who we look to. And so he finishes, he's coming here to the end in verse 14. And he says, he will glorify me. And here's the best news because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive it from me, what he will make known to you. So he'd spoke, he'd spoken in kind of some, some, okay, the Spirit of truth is over here or whatever, but now he's directly tying himself. Jesus is the Spirit of truth. He's separate from it, but he is that. He is the Father, but he's separate. And so here again, we have this complicated concept, but if we, the simple fact of the matter is if we want to know, if we want to know, what truth is, then we look at Jesus. Because he's the funnel by which all this stuff comes out. We run everything that we are and everything that we believe through him. And so many of us approach Jesus with, with everything that we have, our upbringing, our, our political leanings, whatever. And we come to him and we start telling him how it is. And we get uncomfortable whenever he doesn't agree with us on what we hope that he would agree with us on. Whenever he has a different perspective on how we treat the person around us. Those are hard things to reckon with, but they're the beauty of the gospel that he comes in to our situation. And I believe we can acknowledge this world's broken. I believe we can acknowledge that things don't work right. And he is going to fix it. And he is the person who does this. This should not be some partisan issue. This should be something that we adopt as people to say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the greatest thing Jesus said for me to do was to love him with everything I got and to love my neighbor as myself. If I'm doing something, if I'm believing something, if I'm acting in something that does not fall in line with those two things, I know that I'm off base. That is the message of the gospel. That's what he wants for us, all of us together as a community, not just individually, but everyone in the room coming together to have tough conversations, to address tough issues, to not allow fear and anger and resentment and things deep inside to prevent us from having empathy with our neighbor across from us and work to solutions together. It is absolutely essential that we're able to do this. This is the historic church with all of its problems that got off the beaten path so many times as we've examined. But the heart and the truth of the gospel, and I'm going to be a broken record, it's to love him and to love the people around us and run everything else we learn. All of our Bible knowledge has got to answer to that because that's what it comes from. He is the one in the beginning, he is the center of everything that we have. Without him, we've got nothing. And he is the light. He's the good news that he writes on us and gives us the opportunity to be with. 
This past week, they, uh, some Israeli archaeologists uncovered some more Dead Sea Scrolls. And if that means nothing to you, uh, it, yeah, it's just history, I guess. Um, but they uncovered some more of these really old scrolls that contain manuscripts from passages of Scripture back uh, in the Old Testament, I guess is what we would say. Um, and uh, it was interesting. Uh, Cameron, my wife, sent me this um, article, and I was reading through it, and I was prepping for this message, and I saw that one of the passages of Scripture that they found and highlighted um, was so pertinent and relevant. And I got in and I started examining and studying this passage, and it's amazing to me how this was, this was the crystal clear thing that he gave to his people back in the day, even as they were, you know, loving him, not loving him, going his way, not going his way, committing this, not doing this. God's love for his people was consistent, and that love is open to us now, right? That's the beautiful thing. But this is what he gives them, and this is the, the passage that was on the, on the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. So it's in Zechariah 8. In 16 through 17, these are the words of Zechariah the prophet. He's speaking from God to the people of God. And he said, these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. Speak the truth to each other. Say what's true. Render true and sound judgment. Root out any sort of injustice where you find it because we are to render true and sound judgment. We don't plot evil against each other. We seek for each other's good. We don't misrepresent someone else's viewpoint. We don't take what they're saying, draw a dividing line down the middle and separate us from them because we feel like we have to. We listen to their side, we understand, and we don't swear falsely that, the under, that we understand something that we don't. This is something that God gave his people to operate as a community, to say, we can get rid of a lot of this stuff. And again, we got sin nature part of this, right? But we can get rid of a lot of this stuff if this is what we rally around. And so that's the now. Like that, he was speaking to them then, and it's relevant to us today. But also earlier in this passage, he speaks of the end of what's to come. And it says this in verse 3. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. And so if this means not much to you, that it's because it's heady into the world stuff. But really what we believe is that in the end, God's going to make all things new. Everything that hurts us, everything that wrongs us, causes us to cry, steals from us, takes life from us, and I speak from us as in everyone. Anything that's wrong and steals what has been given as life will be done for in the end. And so Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem is the common verbiage for it. That's going to be what's going to happen. It's going to be here, remake everything. I call it the faithful city. And the beautiful thing about that translation is another way of saying that is the city of truth and holiness. City of truth, where no one's confused about anything, no one's mistreated, we're all on the same page, we're able to have conversations and navigate, and holiness, and that again is a word we lose, but holiness at its root is wholeness, W-H-O-L-E, wholeness, that it's complete, it's lacking nothing. We don't feel like, ah, oh, we're missing something. It's whole and it's complete. 
And so we have now, what we're to do now as a community, rallied around the, tra- the, the truth, telling the truth. We're truth tellers as believers in Jesus. But there's one thing that we have to understand. And it's that truth is not convenient. It's costly. It's costly. It's been costly for anyone throughout history to speak up when there was wrong happening. Oftentimes it ends in death. Oftentimes it ends in silence, the loss of a job, the loss of everything that they worked for in this life. The truth is not just laying on the road much of the time. We can just pick it up and run with it. Much of the time it costs us. Even as we align ourselves with it, we have to do that consciously because it will cost us something. This is a kind of random, but it's relevant. Uh, as I'm wrapping up here, and the band can join me as I'm finishing here. Um, Justin Bieber just released a new album. This is out of, I know, but just bear with me. Uh, Justin Bieber released a new album, and, and uh, it's called Justice. Hope, you know, on the nose there. Um, but there's an interlude in it, and what my point is, that there's an interlude just a, a, where they, he intersperses a, a speech from Martin Luther King in there. And uh, he was saying that, you know, he was talking to his crowd and he was saying, you know, I'm, you might be 38 years old like I am right now and you might be grappling with truth. You might be grappling trying to understand truth. And he said, look, if you don't find something, and for him it was Jesus, that you will lose your life over, you'll be just as dead at 90 as you would be at 38. And as poignant and as powerful as that is, I think about all of the faithful people that have gone before us, the cloud of witnesses who've spoken out against injustice, who've spoken out uh, against the, the dilution of the image of God and other people, we have to retake that, that no matter who we look at around us, it runs through, we're going to love them, we're going to care for them, we're going to meet their needs, and we're going to love God in loving them. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the center of Jesus' commands for us. And so if you guys will bow your heads with me for just a moment. I just want to invite you, if you're, if you're here today and uh, you don't know this Jesus that we're, um, that we're talking about, that that invitation is wide open to you, that he is inclusive of you, he loves you, he cares for you, he died for you. He wants to have a relationship with you. It's as simple as just saying yes to him that you believe and you trust in him. But I just want to close our time praying because I know this was a lot and I want to thank you for listening. I know that this is a hard subject. (laughs) Unenviable, there's the word again. But we must look long and hard the truth at Jesus and self-reflect every step of the way and say, are we in line with Jesus' plan and purpose for us? That's it. And so, Father, we pray that over our community today. We pray that you would move in us, that you would change us and shape us and mold us into the image that you want us to be. May we love and value and cherish the people around you who are so gloriously made in your image. All colors, all tribes, all ethnicities, all people groups everywhere have a seat at the table with you, Father. That's so beautiful. We want to root out anything in us that seeks to thwart that plan. 
We want to be committed to solutions to face the issues of our day. Because that's our call as people to love you and to love one another. And so, Lord, as we navigate this time together, please keep the evil one away. Draw us closer to one another and help us to grow to be like Jesus.